This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, everyone. I'm very excited about this edition of Holding Court because uh, this young lady has uh, been around my ether for many, many years in many different ways through ESPN, through the USTA, and just through tennis in general. And that, of course, is the one and only Pam Shriver, one of the legendary players in women's tennis, especially, of course, on the doubles court, but as a singles player as well. And she continues to do it all in the world of tennis outside of the court as well. Pam, how are you holding up out there in Southern California during these crazy times? Well, first off, holding court. What a great name for a podcast. And I think we're holding our own here in Los (laughs) Angeles. Um, uh, We have sort of a similar situation. We have an older single kid followed pretty closely by twins. Right. So, you know, three really close together has its benefits. Occasionally it doesn't have its benefits. But, um, hey, one day at a time we're making it through. And you, you've had to deal with not only the pandemic but also the, the fires out there in Southern California in the past couple of years. Your ex-husband, of course, uh, is Australian, George, and he's you, you're very close with uh, the Australians in general and the Australian culture. So we had a, we, all of us, going down um, to the Australian Open this year with the fires happening just before then. And then, of course, this thing happens immediately when we get back to stateside uh, post-Australian Open. So it's been a, a crazy 2020. It sure has. I mean, I think about when I was like six years old in Baltimore in 1968 when so much happened, and I was just old enough to remember a lot of that and living near a city like Baltimore and the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy Jr., the riots. Um, But this is like nothing I've seen, and I try and tell my kids, like, I'm sorry you're going through it at 14 and 16 years of age, but it'll make you stronger in the end. Well, let's go back to those years, Pam, when you were a youngster, and even even before then, at six years old. I, I, I know you started playing tennis sort of the same time I did, about three, four years old. Of course, I started because I had a couple of brothers, one fairly famous one that got pretty good at tennis. Uh, how did you get started in the game, and, and what are some of your first memories of being involved in the sport? Same deal. My family loved to play. Sam and Margot Shriver loved to play. I also remember playing tennis with all of my grandparents at one point. Um, my grandmother on my mom's side, we called her Moppy. She was particularly uh, a tennis fanatic her entire life. In fact, my daughter Caitlin found my grandmother's yearbook from like high school in about 1922. Mm. And reading her activities, one of her favorite things was tennis, and no surprise, and that stayed with her through all, like, 96 years of her life. So I'm third generation. My kids all play at some level, um, so they're fourth generation tennis players. It's the greatest lifetime sport, global. It's equality that we've seen since 73 at the U.S. Open when I was just 11 years of age. That was a big year for tennis. Um, so I, I feel blessed. And when when you your your first memories of actually playing the game, Pam, obviously you're known as as one of the greatest doubles players, arguably the greatest doubles team in the history of tennis. You and Martina Navratilova won, I believe it's twenty one. Was it twenty or twenty one majors together? I know you, you won, won 
We won 20 together. I won uh, uh, 21st with Natasha Zareva right. in 91 and then won in mixed doubles. So um, when you first remember sort of playing, I mean, you're obviously one of the most competitive people I know in everything you do. Um, do you remember the, the competitive side of you from a, from a young oh, age? Yes. Yeah. I, I can remember certain things very vividly. I grew up uh, at a at a tennis and swim club, um, and also played a lot of sort of Baltimore County public rec programs. Um, but I can remember particularly at Larendale Club in Baltimore, Maryland, having these competitive all day long sessions with both boys and girls, but particularly the boys. And I think that's where I ended up developing my temper a little bit. Was just it, it, it was supervised a little bit. There were always pros around teaching some, but a lot of our tennis was just, I don't want to say chaotic, but it was just free-for-all. We just, we'd go partner up, we'd go play sets, and occasionally it would be more structured. And then as I got a little bit older and, say, met Don Candy when I was 9, 10 years of age, um, I started to take more individual lessons and Believe it or not, I didn't play year-round until I was 14. Mm, wow, that's late for, for, for high-level players, particularly professionals. Yeah, well, I, I loved, and I still, you know me, I still talk about, I think it's for a lot of kids playing a couple of sports till your mid-teens. There's nothing wrong with it. I, I loved playing on my varsity basketball team in high school. Um, I thought the two sports were really went together well. Um, I, You know, you grew up in a cold northeast, a climate as did I in Baltimore. It wasn't all that easy. Um, it, I'm a little bit older than you. It wasn't all that easy in the 60s to find indoor courts, and it was too cold to play year-round in Baltimore. So that's why basketball in the wintertime was perfect. But I also think it helped me uh, to have a 19-year career. And it, I just turned 58, believe it or not. You and I have birthdays just a couple of days apart. You're fourth a lot of, fourth, of me, Jul- fourth of July <laughs> for Pam Driver, of course. Yep. Fitting. But I, I feel yeah. like I feel like Baltimore and pacing myself helps me now feel like my knees, my back, my hips. The only thing that's a little off is my right shoulder, but everything else feels really good because I don't think I overplayed. What type of uh, player were you on the basketball court, Pam? Well, at, I, I grew early. So I was like 5'11 in my freshman year. So you can imagine they put me under the basket. I played the post position center. And um, I just, I just loved it, loved it. Now, um, one of the things that I know has been, you know, true to your heart over the years has been promoting women's tennis and the WTA tour. You were the president of the WTA for a couple of years back in the early '90s. And what, when did, when did that bell go off for you, Pam Shriver, the the female athlete? that this was something that um, you wanted to continue to push. I know you, you still do it to this day, pushing not just women's tennis, but women's sports in general. When did that bell ring for you? I think the second I played my first tournament, Virginia Slims of Washington, D.C., when I was 15 and a half, and in that field with Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, Chrissy was taking a few weeks off. Obviously, what Billie Jean King did when I was 11 years of age by beating Bobby Riggs in 73, and, and um, you know, next this year is actually the 50th anniversary of the original nine in women's tennis, where those nine brave women signed a contract that really put them out of the establishment, put them in danger whether or not they could play major the majors. 
all to try and start women's tennis at a better path than what 1968 and open tennis provided, which was a lot of male leadership and a lot of um, priorities given to men's tennis and the prize money split. And it took an amazing leader in Billie Jean King to uh, start to try and get an even playing field. And I feel like um, Chris Everett stepped up. She was president of the WTA for many, many years, as was Martina Navratilova. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be a top player, and I wanted to lead both on the court and off the court. Well, you've done that, and you've done a lot more than that. And, uh, you know, I mentioned your uh, exploits on the doubles court, but uh, many people forget that you were a top five singles player for countless years, and you got to as high as number three. You were basically top ten, perennial top ten throughout uh, a good portion of your career. So do do you sometimes get a little ticked off? That people, you know, even not that, as that I did in this podcast, saying, you know, Pam Shriver, one of the great doubles players, despite the fact that you reached the U.S. Open final, a couple, you know, a couple other major semis as well. That, or, or, or is it more of a pride in what you did overall, and and particularly with all the titles in doubles, over a hundred overall, by the way, in doubles. Yeah, I mean, the doubles record is crazy good. I mean, I, I never could have dreamed. I mean, that was my break of all time in October 1980 when I got a phone call. I was playing a tournament down in South Florida and the tour director came out and said, Pam Martinez on the phone. She wants to talk to you. She never called me in my life. And it was just a month earlier, I'd lost some finals of the U.S. Open doubles with Betty Stova in her last tournament to Billie Jean and Martina. So for me to get that call and for us to have the best part of a 10-year partnership that gave us 20 majors was obviously my career break. And I, there's no way I could match that in singles, but I was really, I was really proud of my singles career. The length of time I was in the top 10, I felt like I was just chasing all time greats mm. every second of my career, which would have been obviously Chrissy Martina and then Groff Celis. So I kind of can relate a little bit to players like Sanga and Burdick Ferrer the guys who have uh, just been chasing the big three, um, and then when Murray was winning his majors, I totally understand how they feel. But guess what? It's still amazing to be able to compete at, on the tour with the greatest of all time. Well, you were right there as one of the greatest of all time, certainly in doubles. And uh, you know, now Pam, you and I have worked together for many years at ESPN. I, I, I like you know when people ask me about my TV career, I like to say, well, you know, I tried to learn all the different roles, and you know, you use that term in baseball. He's a five-tool player, and I said, well, I'm going to try to be able to do every sort of every part. You know, learn over the years, take the opportunities to do different roles. And if, if I'm a five tool player, Pam, then you're a seven tool player because I don't think <laughs> anybody does as much um, as far as the variety of what you do in broadcasting. Talk about color, which is the role that us former players fall into pretty easily. That's easy for us to talk about the game and talk about the X's and O's. But the play-by-play, the host role, is something that takes a little more learning and, and a little more preparation. But what uh, And you do that as well. You know, I like to think I, you know, I, I can do both, um, you know, do the studio uh, hosting as well. But what, what really stands out to me, in addition to all those things you do, is how you deal with the interviews, the courtside stuff, whether it's very serious situations or, you know, lighthearted stuff like we do at the U.S. Open with uh, the celebrities in the house. So is that something that 
I know I put my mind to it early on, thinking this would be a way for me to keep my job, right, for as long as possible. Um, but what was it that, that propelled you to be able to do so many different roles? Well, I got to go back to like early 80s when um, CBS asked me to first join a broadcast booth. I was just 19 years of age. And they didn't, at that point, they didn't have a, a full time like Mary Carrillo. They didn't have a female broadcaster. They just sort of asked maybe a group of us, like a Virginia Wade or a Billie Jean King. And then I was kind of from the younger group, and they liked what they saw from me in the uh, US Open 1978, the way I handled myself. So I got a really early invitation to go in the booth, obviously as an analyst, but I worked alongside Pat Summerall, Tony Trabert, and I think, you know, those early years with CBS, I worked, you know, quite a few U.S. Opens and other events, and then when ESPN in 1990, again, it was still seven years before I played my last match on the tour, they asked me after I lost early at the Australian Open if I'd work courtside position on, on some outside courts. Of course, them, that was the days when Cliffy, Fred, Mary were really the, the core of the team. Um, so I think it was saying yes to opportunities. And then really when um, I was asked to do more of the courtside reporting and what we call the RF reporting, sort of wandering the grounds and going to maybe a crazy match that's going on outside court. At first, Patrick, you know, I mean, I looked at it as a, as a little bit as a demotion, not being in the booth. But I learned in short order that the variety it gave you, your ability to um, – grasp onto different kinds of moments, whether it was an injury or a controversy or just something unexpected. Um, and then I, I just love to see the faces of the athletes up close from the courtside position to see the interaction between the coaches and the umpire. So I've learned to love it and embrace it, but it wasn't that way at the beginning so much. Mm. Well, you know, also, uh, and, and I get that I started out as a courtside guy with, as you said, Cliff Drysdale and Fred Stolle, the fiery one, and I was sort of the, the new guy on the block, so I got, you know, learned the ropes from, from those guys. Mary Carrillo was around at that point as well. But uh, I always love it when you go out. Obviously, the serious stuff is, is there. You handle that as well as anyone when there are serious issues or controversies. But, um, you know, I love it when you go out on Henman Hill or you go out and you talk to the fans. And to me, that, that shows that you, you, you just love people, you know, and you, you obviously love the game. We know that, and both of us do, because it's given us, you know, so much of our lives, our livelihoods, et cetera. But we love the game at its heart, and I think we both of us love people that, that also love the game. And I think that shows in, in ways that um, are obvious when you're out there just talking to the fans. Well, thanks. It's kind of, I feel like tennis has helped me with that. There's been so many opportunities to have social moments, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in groups all over the world. Um, so I think the sport, I think my parents growing up in Baltimore, they had, a, you know, there was a lot of social stuff going on and you just had to be comfortable. I learned to be very comfortable in um, whatever role talking to somebody and well, sure, I can get the butterflies. Believe me, if I'm about ready to talk to Alec Baldwin in the third row and um, you and your brother are throwing it down to me, I can I can get that rush of adrenaline, hoping that I, you know, just kind of let the stars shine enough, but yet segue the questions right, be able to pay attention to maybe if there is suddenly a break point and Alex, Alec Baldwin's maybe gone on a sentence or two early. Just, <laughs> right, you know, right. <laughs> But I've, I've loved it through the years, whether it's uh, 
some of the athletes that show up, uh, Hank Aaron and Frank Robinson from baseball, Michael Phelps from swimming, um, Coach Cower, uh, Dick Vitale, um, some of the great entertainers of the world. I remember sitting next to Aretha Franklin, the late great Aretha Franklin, during a rain delay, and she was all set to for me to have a chat with her, and then it turns out we had to go someplace else, and that was the one interview that I'm like, oh, mm. darn it. <laughs> and then what about Ron Burgundy through the years oh for throwing God. it back up? Yeah. Yeah, to that, you guys. Oh, that's that's some of the best moments. So much fun. Yeah, we we enjoy it. You know, we, I think we take it um, seriously when it needs to be taken seriously. But we do remember it's uh, entertainment, it's tennis, it's a game, and we got to have some fun as well. And you had a lot of fun, Pam. I know. Uh, you know how important it was to you to represent the U.S. in Fed Cup for many years and in the Olympics as well, you, where you won multiple gold medals in, 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 in multiple events. So what was that like for you to uh, participate in, in the Olympic Games and also represent the country so often as you did for so many years in the Fed Cup? Yeah, it was, uh, the Fed Cup moment that stands out the most was 1986, uh, going back to Prague, then still called Czechoslovakia. It was the first time Martina Navratilova had gone back 11 years after she had defected. Um, the, the things that m- my partner had gone through to become the best in the world, she left her family, she left her home country she to gain freedom so that she could pursue being number one. And it was Chrissy, Zena, Garrison, myself, and Martina, and we ended up winning against Czechoslovakia in the finals. That was in the format mm. years when, it, like it is supposed to be coming up next when it's, the finals are played all in one city. That was incredible. I only actually did play in one Olympics, and Zena Garrison and I happened to win the gold medal the first time tennis was back as a full medal sport in 88, and that was in Seoul. And uh, she beat me in the quarters of the singles, so didn't quite make the double, uh, double medal winner, but Zena did. And, um, you know, these are all great memories that, you know, while I hold on to them, it's like full speed ahead to parenting and looking forward to uh, what's going to be a historic U.S. Open of 2020. Yeah, well, let's get into that because uh, the parenting side we both know about. As you said, we both got three and, and a set of twins as well. But looking ahead to, to the U.S. Open, which is a couple of weeks away at this point as we speak, and uh, all of us at ESPN gearing up for what's going to be certainly a very different U.S. Open, obviously for the players as well. And just um, give me your sense, Pam. You've been pretty involved, I know, with some of the internal discussions in the WTA. You've been part of that for so many years. And Stacey Allister, who's now uh, running the U.S. Open itself, was the former uh, head of the WTA. But just give me your sense of where you think this is headed. And, and, and I mean, obviously, we're all in somewhat of this world where we're not sure what's going to happen day to day. We talk about our kids going back to school and talk about when can we go out, et cetera. How does, how have you followed this as far as, you know, we've had our own calls with our bosses at ESPN about where this is going and just what's your sense of how this U S open plays out? Well, um, first off, it's been since we last were together uh, at the Australian open, um, how the world is just, flipped onto its head um, with the virus. Um, you know, I, I've been educated through, I, my kids are going to be going to three high schools. Um, there's been a lot of education from the, the world of schools, obviously, and I know you and Melissa are right up on that. The USTA has been a source of great information, uh, and the WTA, those are, those are sort of the five, the three schools that my kids go to and those two organizations. So I, I've learned a lot as well as the media 
but I try and get information from organizations that are apolitical. I feel like it's a healthier way to get information right now, and, and I feel like I have a science major now, or, or, or a minor in, in certainly infectious disease. Mm-hmm. How do I think it's going to go? I feel like incredible hard work and bold commitment of both the USTA, the ATP, the WTA, U.S. Open tennis is going to happen. I also got to give great credit to your home state because New York, who went through hell uh, just a few months ago, has, and let's just, I, I still want to knock on wood. We know a lot can happen quickly. I'm out here in L.A. where we were buttoned down and did great at the beginning, and then things kind of fell apart from Memorial Day, and, and with protesting, it just kind of opened back up to the virus, and I just pray as, as New York and New York City goes into, I think it's stage four, that it's done with discipline, with, with wearing the mask, and that people are considerate of fellow human beings. And if that's the case, the U.S. Open's going to happen. We're going to have one of the most historic majors in tennis history, just like we saw in golf this week where, you know, the PGA of America held the first major during the pandemic, and it was incredible. It was so exciting, even without the fans. So I think it's going to be very rewarding and a memorable U.S. Open even fanless. And how important do you think it is just for tennis overall and the message that potentially that, you know, a safe and, and, and exciting, even just on the, on the network that the U S open can provide for fans of all sports, but particularly tennis fans. Well, I think we've all really enjoyed seeing sports come back in. I know baseball struggled a little bit, but it's very bold when you're so international and you've got athletes coming in from all parts of the world. Some, from part regions that have maybe controlled the virus better at better testing, some maybe not so much, and be able to bring them all together and be in this bubble of the National Tennis Center and a couple of hotels and transportation back and forth. It's going to take uh, 128 singles players and the doubles players and both the men's and women's to really be big team players for the sport of tennis because I do think the tennis fans want to see a major. They want to see if Serena can get to 24 Obviously, Roger and Rafa are, are opting out for different reasons. You know, will Novak creep closer? Um, or will some outsider finally win on the men's side for the mm. first time in a while because of how c- crazy the whole preparation is? And what will Novak's condition been since he tested positive to the virus not that long ago? It's To me, the storylines are extraordinary in this time of... Um, it's sort of sad history for, for us, but I think sports can bring a smile to our face. Yeah, well, let's hope that uh, that happens. Pam, you have brought a smile to my face many, many times, uh, both in our ESPN meetings that aren't seen on TV and both on air as well. And, you know, sometimes we, we get into it a little bit as well, but uh, I think we do that uh, with all the right intentions, don't we? We like to needle each other once in a while, don't we? You're like the brother I never had. Remember, I had two sisters, so right. I mean, I've and you're known like, you and you're a like, the, and you're like the sister I've never had. You know. Well, and, and and you're not as scary to sort of needle as your brother. Although your brother's gotten more, he's he's gotten a little easier to give a little dig to every so often. So anyway, I I think it's fun to be on a broadcast team with different views, and um, if we all thought the same. That'd be pretty boring. Yeah, you got that right. Pam Shriver, ladies and gentlemen, won over 100. Make that 112 career doubles titles, 21 majors in in women's doubles, and 21 singles titles throughout her illustrious career. 
But more than that, she is uh, someone who's done so much for tennis outside the court and is a great friend of mine and uh, an amazing mother, by the way. And I've seen that firsthand as well. Well, Patrick, thanks. You've been a friend a long time and uh, look forward to working with you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be working remotely at the U.S. Open because I got a kid with uh, autoimmune disorder and we got some things going on here that I can't quite leave. But I'm looking forward to still pitching in. So all the best to everybody. Well, you will pitch in as you always do as a champ. And uh, thank you, Pam, for joining me. And uh, we will see you remotely at the U.S. Open from New York City. All the best, Pam. Thanks. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.